back to Institutionalized, a podcast of American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, to the editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing this week? You know, there haven't been many TV shows or movies that I've been into recently. So what I've been spending all my non-work hours doing is playing Elden Ring which is great because it lets you okay. basically build it's a it's a video game charles oh, i'm not uh, i don't i don't follow look these it, things look it up yeah so so basically, i spend my non i spend my non-work hours wrangling a toddler which is like a video game but not right so what's cool about elden ring is that if you screw up you know and someone dies you can just start over uh which like, great like unlike unlike, unlike your toddler yeah, but okay. you can also That's you great. can also but like raising your toddler, Charles. You know, you the player are are shaping the trajectory of a life and and creating a story within within the bounds of an of external constraints imposed by some faraway designer. In the case of Elden Ring, that is European software developer. In the case of your life, that would probably be God, and to some extent, the United States government. So. This analogy clearly works. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that I can learn a lot about, uh, I don't know, my, my experience of raising a child from, from your video game. I'm, I'm excited to see how you can execute the segue, though. How are you going to go from video games to our topic today? Well, Charles, the reason I've been playing video games is because a lot of movies are shit and TV shows yeah. are shit. And what we are going to be talking about today is why movies and TV shows are shit and why... Fewer people seem to be watching them, or at least why fewer people seem to be watching the movies. Yeah, and I think I'll 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 take away sort of our intro. Our our topic this week is the is is the film industry, the movies, capital M movies. And you know, they're they're which are which are Aaron sent me a an essay by Russ Douthit prior to this recording, which I found he sort of lays out the 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 recent history of American cinema. In, in in a characteristic way, arguing for its decline from a prior period of greatness. I think that's right. My instinct is always look at the numbers. Ticket sales fell 82% in 2020, still down 40% against 2019 as of the end of 2021. But total sales have actually been declining since 2002, representing a broader shift in how we consume movies. There are, of course, a whole set of forces which are acting on the movie industry, the rise of streaming, the globalization of the marketplace, in particular China's emergence as a major source of consumers, the sort of constant presence of culture war and its influence on Hollywood. All of these, I think, determine the the shape of the movie industry in the 21st century. Um, what we're going to do this week, and while we brought our guests, is sort of talk about how does the movie industry work? How is it operating today? How is it working well? How is it working poorly? How do these how do these factors affect things? So it's you know it's it's, it's a fun episode. Aaron, what are, what's what's your take on our topic this week? Yeah, so there's obviously a lot here, but to, to me, one thing that that's been interesting for a while is this kind of puzzle in which you have most Americans are not woke, and yet, and show business is supposed to cater almost by definition to what the audience wants. And yet, with a few notable exceptions, we've seen Hollywood go crazy woke in recent years. And you've also seen this kind of divide between critics and audiences. I call this Rotten Tomato Syndrome, where, you know, often the critic and audience reactions to a given movie are, are the opposite. Critics will 
love what the audience hates. Critics will hate what the audience loves. See Joker, Dave Chappelle, et cetera. And I'm kind of interested in why there's been this disjunction and also the degree to which it can persist or the degree to which it will eventually collapse. Yeah, I mean, so I'm interested in that. I think we end up going in a couple of different directions in the conversation because I, I, you know, I think our guest has thoughts in a number of different directions. I've heard him express opinions, thoughts inside a number of different directions. You know, my my interest here is is sort of in the shift in movies that I alluded to a minute or so ago. My my sort of aesthetic impression. I spent a lot of time watching. When I say old movies, I mean movies from the 1980s and 1990s that are not in any meaningful sense old, but are not. I don't watch a lot of contemporary movies because I don't get out of the house a lot. Do you watch a movie? But, you know, I do I do have a synthetic impression that the, the dynamics of what we expect out of movies has shifted. That in some senses, we try to make safer movies today, that movies are less of a cultural big deal than they once were. And hey, I'm sure if that impression is right. And B, you know, what's what what are the determining incentives and in how we decide what movies should get made, what movies aren't worth taking a risk on, has that risk calculus changed? So again, with this very lightweight questions, I will introduce our guest. Uh, our guest is Sonny Punch. He's the culture editor of The Bulwark and Washington Post contributing columnist. He was previously editor-in-chief of Rebeller and executive editor of The Washington Fabrican, where he was, among other things, my first editor as a, as, as a real journalist. Sonny, welcome to Institutionalized. Hello. So, so, so we, like to, we like to open with sort of a, you know, an in-your-face provocative question. As I alluded to earlier, there's been a dramatic decline in movie consumption. There hasn't really been a rebound to even to pre-2020 levels, even two years into the pandemic. So like, did COVID just kill movies or are movies yeah. done now? Well, I mean, it's, it, it was very interesting because I think this is the first time either of you has mentioned COVID in in the context of box office decline. And I got to be honest, I think COVID probably had a much bigger effect on the 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 decline that we saw that you would you had mentioned i mean there was a what 80 percent drop in 20 2020 compared to 2019 and 2021 was better recovered about half that but it was still was still well down but yeah no mention of covid i i gotta be honest i think covid has probably had a bigger impact on theatrical movie going than wokeness over the over the last few years i think that the the you know, it, poll after poll shows that people were freaked out about going to movie theaters. They were worried about COVID, despite despite my strenuous efforts to assure them that you know going to theaters perfectly safe. They did not believe me, sadly. So so theaters. I mean, all of twenty twenty, essentially all of twenty twenty was lost after the first weekend of March. Most of twenty twenty one was lost as well. I mean, it depends on how you want to think about it. But movie going didn't really recover until. Spider-Man No Way Home. Spider-Man No Way Home is the third highest grossing movie of all time domestically, I believe. I didn't check the numbers before I came on to see where they were, but I'm pretty sure it's still the third highest grossing movie of all time. So the the audience has started to come back. You you see it with the Batman, right? The the Batman has grossed about three quarters of a billion dollars worldwide, which is roughly twice what Batman Begins grossed, if you want to think really apples to apples here it's the start of a new series of batman movies right you want to look at you want to look at where where the last series started you could look at that i i mean i like i the there is a there's a segment of the market that has recovered pretty well and that's the comic book blockbuster the mcu type movies right the batman movies or spider-man movies and that doesn't mean that all of those movies are going to do well morbius was a pretty big bomb 
but they are they are they are recovering to a i think basically a pre-covid level and then you look at other segments of the market that are kind of recovering family movies so the new sonic movie for instance pretty big hits grossed 170 million dollars something like that they've managed to turn sonic into a viable movie franchise somehow take that mario brothers beliefs which is, you know, which is interesting. The, the number one movie this weekend was The Bad Guys, which is based on a, a children's book. Um, Sing 2, I think, grossed something like eight times its opening weekend over the, the life of that film, which is, which is a big number. That number is usually closer to 2.7 times. So folks are coming back for movies for families. Families want to go to the movies. I don't know about you, Charles. I don't know if you take your children to to the movies yet but i like to take my children to the movies because they just sit there and eat popcorn for two hours it's wonderful the biggest problem at the box office right now is the kind of mid-budget adult drama or adult action movie or adult thriller those those pictures were in decline long before covid and i think covid accelerated them and the the reason for that is again i i don't think it's i mean who knows maybe maybe it's wokeness I don't I don't think it's wokeness. I think it's more just that TV has kind of taken over that space in the marketplace. You have basically everything that was on HBO, Netflix. And now we have the 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 pandemic accelerated this by introducing a bunch of new streaming operations. I just I just finished reading and interviewing one of the authors of uh, a new book called Binge Times. It's basically about the the debuts of well, not the debut, but the 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 like ascendance of Netflix during the the pandemic, but also the debut of uh, HBO Max, Apple TV Plus, Quibi, don't forget Quibi, and I, one other, there's, there's another one in there that I'm forgetting. But basically, those places became the place where people went to go watch adult-oriented shows for grown-ups. I'll put it this way. I, I, I'm very, I'm very open to this thesis in terms of how, how it appeals to people. It's very nice to stay home. I don't particularly like a lot of these TV shows, but I like enough of them that if I wanted to, I could probably get away with never leaving the house again. So if I was a casual moviegoer, if I didn't, if it wasn't my job, I could see myself staying in and watching Severance on Apple TV Plus or Slow Horses on Apple TV Plus, right? I'd watch uh, Winning Time on HBO Max or We Own This City, right? The new David Simon thing. Netflix, you know, Netflix has had a bad couple of weeks bad bad couple of months really their stock is down i think 67% or something like that since the beginning of the year they they basically lost two thirds of their market capitalization which is a problem for them obviously and it in it the the biggest problem for them is that it makes it impossible to sustain their business model which is based on taking out tons of debt to flood the market with tons and tons of content you know there was a theory for a while that netflix would be the only service for some reason, I don't I this has never made any sense to me. This argument that Netflix would be it. It would just be Netflix. Like we've had competing TV networks for a century. We have competing movie networks, you know, competing movie studios. We have competing cable channels. I mean, the idea that there would just be one thing that was the the survivor at the end of all this never really made any sense to me. But that is how it was valued for a long time. And that has that has come crashing down. So they, they have a lot of challenges just in terms of trying to figure out what their actual market niche is. But it's not a terrible problem to have if you already have 220 million subscribers. I mean, like it's the thing about Netflix is that everybody, including me, likes to talk about how they're in a lot of trouble. They still generate like $24 billion a year in revenue. I mean, that's net. Or I'm sorry, that's gross. That's not net. But it's, you know, it is 
an insane amount of money. They they gross they they generate essentially the entirety of the pre-pandemic US box office. Not quite, but it's it's in that in that range. And it's you know, the, the there is a business model that works there. They just have to figure out what it is. Yeah, so so one way to one one sort of way that I'm thinking about the set of facts you just laid out and I want you to tell me if this makes sense is that right, there there's sort of three bins things that recover they're these big blockbuster trying to make a billion dollar movies there are kids movies which are mostly pretty cheap and sort of draw a lot of eyes because you want you know they, they have a captive audience in a certain sense and those have both recovered sort of on the on on either end of the distribution of cost among other things and then there are a lot of movies that are made in the middle that are sort of you know bigger budget but not huge budget that are substitutable with are substitutable with stuff you could go home and watch on television. A lot of people are substituting to the why would I get off my couch to go watch this thing in theaters when I could just watch it on HBO Max or whatever. So A, A is that is that some profit analysis accurate? But then B, if that's the case, you know, how does how do these changing market dynamics more generally shift the kind of movies that people have an incentive to make? How are the movies that we're making different from how they were five years ago by virtue of these changes? Yeah, so there are a couple of big market changes that have happened over the last 10 to 15 years that people should keep in mind when we're talking about the mid-budget adult drama, the movie that costs 30 to $60 million to make. The, the first big change is that the, the home entertainment revenue streams have been absolutely gutted. It used to be, a, you used to be able to basically make up all of your money on DVD sales, either, you know, either to Blockbuster or, you know, at 10 bucks a pop at Best Buy or whatever. People would, people were buying tons and tons of DVDs. And that market has obviously shifted to streaming. People, people don't want to own movies anymore. They want to pay for access to them. So that has had a real, that's, that's had a real big impact on studio bottom lines. So if you're looking at a movie that costs $40 million and you can't count on the $25 million that you were going to make from DVD sales, it's a problem. The, the second big thing, and this is, a, this is a problem that has existed for years. It's gotten, I think, a little bit worse in, in recent years, but it, it, they're, they're two distinct problems here. And that has to do with uh, PNA, basically advertising, publicity and advertising. So the, it, you know, it, the thing about a $30 million movie is that if you, let's say you make a movie for $50 million, then you need to spend about 30 to $40 million to market it. So you're looking at a $90 million outlay, let's say, let's say, let's make it, let's make it a nice round number. Let's say $100 million. That means then that that movie has to gross $200 million at the worldwide box office, more or less, because theaters get a big cut of revenue, right? Theaters take 40 to 60%, depending on the, the studio, depending on the movie, depending on the weekend, whatever, you know, but basically 50, 50. So you want to, you want to look at uh, a movie that costs $50 million. You have to generate $200 million of revenue at the box office to make it work. Now, these numbers are all tricky. Hollywood math is, is a saying for a reason because Hollywood math is largely bullshit. It's they, there are ways to squeeze money. The, these numbers are, are very messy and the, the studios play all sorts of games to squeeze extra revenue out by like distributing them and taking a cut of the distribution fee and blah, blah, blah. But you know, the long and the short of it is at a certain point, it only makes a lot of financial sense to release a movie that costs $150 million to make, another $100 million to market, and that you could maybe gross a billion dollars on. That's, that's how you make, that's your how you make your Marvel movies, your Spider-Man, your MCU movies. I mean, those, the, the, the budget on the latest Spider-Man movie was like 
300 something million dollars. And part of that had to do with there were a lot of extra COVID costs. Like I, I, it's making a movie in the COVID era is expensive. There's lots of testing. There's lots of, you know, you, you can only have so many people on set. There's only so much you can do every day, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it just it, it was going to be it was always going to be a very, very expensive movie. But I saw a story that it worked out for them They They made a profit just on the theatrical of something like six hundred million dollars. So good for Sony. Sony is Sony has figured out how to make money in this in this environment. The, the family stuff is has a slightly different dynamic because those the home market on that is still is still OK, though. I think that's drying up as well. And it's shifting, right? It's shifting to like Disney Plus or Netflix. Where you're bundling it. We're basically rebuilding all of our cable bundles. Remember, I, I don't know, I, Aaron, you might be too young to remember this, <laughs> but you, there was a there was a big argument back in the the 90s and all, early aughts about unbundling cable. Basically, like, I don't want to pay for AMC. I just want HGTV or whatever. So why can't I just pay my $1 for AMC and my $5 for ESPN and right, not right, pay $60 right. for the yeah. whole thing, right? But now we're just bundling all those back together. I mean, I'm... I, I, I write all of my expenses off on my taxes, so it doesn't matter as much to me uh, as somebody who is gaming the tax system. But but to to regular folks out there, I mean, I like the IRS is not I, listening to this podcast. The, the amount of money. Well, I, hey, look, these are legitimate business expenses. I would not subscribe to Netflix if not for right. if not for my job. You know, the the long and the short of it is, we are basically we are we are in a situation where people are spending essentially the same amount of money to get fewer channels, which is what I always predicted would happen. I always predicted that. Right. Aaron, you're the kind of guy who reads a lot, right? I do, Charles. So All when, the time. when you're out and about online, where do you like to get your news? Where do you like to find essays to read? Well, you know, a lot of the old sources are are horrible, right? I can't read the New York Times anymore because they're terrible. I can't read the Washington Post. They're also terrible. The Atlantic's kind of declined the new republic they're all bad but one place i do read charles is the spectator magazine you know i i also like to check out the spectator keep them in my rotation on a regular basis and i think we actually we have a uh, an offer for our listeners aaron do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the spectator for those who aren't quite in the know indeed the spectator is the longest running magazine in the world it shews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought from the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. It may or may not have asked us to read that exact paragraph, but it's all true. The additional information that's worth noting is that they have a, they have a recent U.S. edition. So it's not just, you know, they, it's long, it's long running because it's British, but they also have, they, they have America focused variation as well and it focuses not just on politics so there's politics in there it's also books travel food wine and much much more do you want to do you want to tell our listeners we have a we have a hey, special yeah. offer for for listeners of institutionalized uh if you sign up today you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access plus they're going to send you a free spectator hat just go to spectatorworld.com special offer and use offer code think in addition to free hats, which I love, and I'm going to follow up after this and make sure that they send me a free hat because I wear hats all the time. I mean, I think part of what I like about The Spectator is it's sort of more jovial character, right? Like, you know, it's 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 politics, but it's sort of that British, like, laughing at itself kind of politics and laughing at the ridiculousness of some of the, the things that they uh, they lampoon. Yeah, what I like about it is they have a really diverse staple of writers, right? So, it, you know... 
people would normally not think of Christopher Caldwell and Slavoj Žižek as being in the same magazine, let alone the same, yeah, in Miles the same conceptual universe. But all of those names have been included in The Spectator. Yeah, I think they really try to get a diversity of opinions centered around, you know, the 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 atmosphere of The Spectator is is more like a cocktail party than a political party. It it, it works to the left, it works to the right. Uh, it's entertaining from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three free months of The Spectator, plus get your free Spectator hat when you subscribe today at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code THINK at, at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer and offer code THINK. So so there's been a kind of, of consolidation, right? Well, it's not really consolidation. It's just less. You're just, you're, we're just, we are headed toward a situation where people are going to end up paying the same amount of money for fewer channels. Now, the way most people use their cable packages, right? Like there, are, let's say there are a hundred channels on them. There are probably 10 that you watch on a weekly basis at the most and 90 that you don't. So like it doesn't, the question is how much does it really matter? But it, it's sure. one of these things where it would have been nice to have like, I don't subscribe but, to Peacock, for instance, but there are occasionally shows on Peacock I would like to watch. And then, you know, right. But, but, but like, when, it, cable when it comes to how many streaming services there are, you know, that people actually buy, right? The, the streaming services, like how many are there relative yeah. to, say, cable channels? I mean, I think that's. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely fewer, but there's a lot. I mean, there's there there. Are, I, I was again, I was talking to this author of Binge Times the other day and he. I think he said that there's something like 250 different services, right? I mean, it just like yeah. obviously nobody's subscribing to all of them, but there's there's yeah. A ton. <laughs> I mean, I've only I only know you know Netflix, Hulu, Disney. I think yeah. there's a couple. I other think you're probably. Things. I mean, Discovery Plus. You gotta have Discovery Plus. What's para? There's Paramount now. Yeah. Paramount Plus, Peacock. Yeah, yeah. Criterion Channel, Shutter. But so the part of the question was, yeah, there's so there's there's sort of this missing middle. And it seems like this missing middle has been substituted to, I mean, originally the television and now certainly the streaming insofar as streaming and television are like are, are, are coterminous for a larger and larger share of the population. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair thing to say. But I mean, it's interesting to think of, about because it's not just a shift of it's not just a shift in location of like where these movies are made. It's a shift of form. It's not, it's, it's, there are more TV shows, right? They're, they're, you're, they're telling different kinds of stories and longer stories. And frankly, I think that's bad for, for the storytellers. My, my big complaint about Netflix is always that these shows are 30% too long. They, right. you know, they, they need to do a better job of, of more concisely telling a story. Some of the networks are better at this than others. Apple TV plus does a pretty good job of keeping, getting rid of excess fat and cutting, cutting the bloat down. HBO Max. I mean, HBO has always been the the leader in in these in this arena for good reason. But Netflix. I mean, their their whole thing, right, is that they're they're not competing against other networks. They're competing against sleep. They're trying to. They're competing against you know you going away from your TV and doing something else. They're trying to keep you there. And if the show that they are making is thirty percent too long, well, that's you know you're you're just going to put up with it. We'll see. We'll see if that's still true. So so. It's okay. So you mentioned that the 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 form of these streaming services uh, affects the the content that's produced on them, and in particular, it's it's moved us towards longer stories. How is that? Is that a function mostly of the the phenomenon of binge watching, 
or is it something else? And then, and then kind of what other kind of features of streaming created shows, like, like what else differentiates them other than that they're just longer, right? Is there anything in terms of the content or the kinds of topics? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. So, so Netflix is is the best to look at here just because they try to be everything to everyone. They are they are trying to do everything, right? So they are it's the same network that's putting out, you know, Dave Chappelle specials and Jeff Foxworthy specials. Mm-hmm. And also what was it that people were I saw people kind of freaking out about my my pregnant husband or something. Uh a, a day or I, two. I I I, oh, I have boy. seen that. I think it's oh, I think it's adapted. I want to say it's Korean, but I'm not actually sure. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that Netflix is like truly a global content producer. They are producing things locally in every market that they are in, in the hopes that a, that will capture the eyeballs there, but then also that something will cross over like a squid game or, or something like that, that will, that it will cross over to the rest of the world, money heist, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they are, they are, they are trying to be everything to everyone, which creates kind of a scattershot approach. There's no there's no Netflix aesthetic, right? There that you could point to in the same way you could point to yeah. an HBO or an AMC or or something like that. It's just very much like we're making we're making is it cake and also murder games Korea, you know, like <laughs> right. But so but so the diversity is this is interesting, right? Because because you also hear this critique that all of TV or, or an increasing share of it is very homogenous. You hear these complaints about the, the proliferation of kind of seemingly woke identity Netflix shows, and you hear other complaints about, I mean, you may not think that's why the movies declined, right? But there is obviously this sort of sense that the, the cultural politics of Hollywood, while always liberal, have become more kind of hegemonically liberal or woke, as, you, as it were, in recent years. So I sort of two-part question is, is A, you know, do you think there's anything to those perceptions? And then B, if so, how do you kind of reconcile that with this proliferation of diversity? It seems like there's kind of, there's both a kind of decentralizing, diversifying impulse kind of intrinsic to this model, but also a kind of phenomenon of homogenization that coexists with it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I... I'm I'm always skeptical to suggest that there is a broad, like overarching sameness to to some of these. So for instance, right, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most uh, successful entertainment product in the world, right? I think that's that's a fair thing to say. Like in terms of a single franchise, right? Would would we argue that that is a like woke thing is that you know i know i like my lefty friends are always like these movies are fascist because it's it's all about the state and the central intelligence agency the military industrial yeah fascist so so you know is that that's a big win for us right the fascists and i like (laughs) (laughs) i i'm always the way netflix works with as much content as it produces it creates things that you can cherry pick out and say, well, look at this that Netflix is doing. Look at look at this. This is this is bad. And again, I just like I, I feel like we just had a big argument. We just had a big giant cultural fight like six months ago where the left was screaming about Dave Chappelle being this horrible reactionary figure. And the right was like, well, I mean, look, he's just he's just doing stand up. He's just you know, he's just speaking truth to power. 
And now like the argument has almost entirely inverted again. And and it gets into weird bad faith stuff like the argument over cuties. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yes, yes. But like so like so like cuties, right, is a movie that I don't know that it works, but it is very clearly a movie that is about the negative consequences of sexualizing children. Like it is it is in its own way like a deeply deeply conservative movie. And folks on the right like flipped out about it. They were like, "This movie is a horrible. It's horrifying. The sexualization of children." Take was that somebody else? No, I did not write a pro cuties take. Although and I, I argued that there were some interesting messages in it. This is, I mean, this is, but this. Is, so I, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, basically saying that same thing. Like, I don't think the movie worked just on its own merits. I, I think it, I think it had weird structural issues, and like also it is tricky to make a movie about the sexualization of children while also showing how yes. that sexualization happens like that 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 is that is a very tricky line to walk and i don't think the movie quite did it but the obvious obvious message of the movie is this is bad this is bad for kids it's bad for society they should be like skipping rope you know out in the streets and not making twerking videos for you know people to watch on tiktok like it that was that was the obvious message of the film and and it gets and because there there are bad incentives on all sides here, and it just gets wrapped up into this like you know you this unipolar cultural sure. war thing where it's like look at the terrible thing Netflix has done now. Like I I don't buy it. Sure. Well, let me let me let me actually ask that question in a slightly different way, which is that I mean the the, the phenomenon that we're talking about with sort of Netflix's mass production mass right as 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 you said, Sonny, Netflix is business model and to some extent i think many other services business model as well is like take on a huge quantity of debt because money is until very recently free and convert that into a huge quantity of content and sort of fire that as many people as possible and if something sticks you make a lot of money off of it and you're sort of you know throw a lot of trash alongside it and it seems to me in a, in a market like that you have to put a lot of time and energy and money into competing for the added marginal eyeball that like everybody is getting bombarded with new content to consume all the time um, and so the amount of work you need to put into you know it's it's not like 30 years ago everyone went and saw titanic whereas you're you're sort of competing to be heard in a much louder marketplace and so you know i think part of what i'm interested in what aaron's interested in certainly is is sort of why is hollywood so concerned about diversity equity inclusion sort of at least performatively so and so like part of the explanation here is that sort of decentralizing mass production of content is necessarily going to entail trying to tailor things to smaller and smaller audiences, particularly audiences that you want to grab onto, particularly young people, particularly people who are hip and social influencers. So, I mean, do you like really want to ask what you think of that model, but the, where, where the model is, is part of what's going on that that sort of like democratization of content, if you want to call it democratization is affecting the sort of things that people are trying to produce. Yes. I mean, I, I, one thing that I'm, I'm going to duck this question slightly or just redirect it. And, and sure. when you, when you mentioned the DEI stuff, you know, what's, what's one thing to think about when you're thinking about all of these studios is that they, it, it's, it's not even so much the consumer that they're worried about. It's their staffs, right? Like, so we saw this, we saw this with Disney, right? Where Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, I thought very wisely said to his staff, some of you are asking me why we are not more actively protesting the 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 don't say gay bill or, you know, mm -hmm. as the so-called don't say gay bill right in Florida. 
And I am just, I am saying we support you, our gay staffers, our diversity-minded staffers. But if we make a statement, it is going to be turned into a object of the culture war. And, you know, we have found that when we make statements like this, it just becomes, it, it doesn't actually do any good. And it usually does bad. It usually becomes a, a weapon for, for the side that we, we don't like. And I, I mean, I was like, that's a, that is correct. You, Bob Chapek, you have correctly identified the issue here. And then like three days later, they was like, I got yelled at so much by my employees. We're going to, we're going to stop right. donating money to, you know, any Republicans. We're going to fight this. We're, we're opposed to this bill on the merits and blah, blah. And I was like, well, that's, that's a mistake. But there is a certain amount of employee capture there. And the reason this shows up in places like Florida or Georgia, right, with the voter rights legislation, there, mm. there was a lot of angst uh, amongst you know, professional sports leagues, movie studios, et cetera, about, about voting, voting rights there. The reason it shows up in places like Florida and Georgia is because the employees at these companies are totally impotent to stop places where actual human rights abuses are happening, like China. Like you, like the employees aren't going to be able to like stop Disney from doing business with China. They're not going to be able to stop Disney from doing business with Saudi Arabia, even though, you know, the amount of money that is, that is generated there is, is far lower than China. Like there, there is a certain amount of just like total impotence in the face of having to do business with bad regimes that there is an overreaction, I think, in places like, like Florida or, or Georgia or wherever. Well, there's, you know, there. I was sort of pushing this woke homogenization line, but there's all, there's another kind of homogenization that you talked about earlier, which is just, you know, the trend towards these superhero blockbusters, which, which has crowded out certain other genres. And one theory that has been floated for that is, is these companies want to appeal to the mass Chinese market. And how do you do that? Well, you know, there's language barriers, whatever, just throw a lot of explosions on screen and, and, you know, all cultures like that, you know, do you, do you buy that thesis? Like how yes. relatively how? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. I mean, this is, this is why I sometimes get a little annoyed and frustrated by the debates about this sort of stuff in America. Like it's all, it's all arguing over stuff that's happening at the margins because the mm -hmm. real, the real issue is in a, in a world in which the only movies that can make money are movies that make a billion dollars. You basically have to be released in China to do that. That's not, that's not actually true. I mean, Spider-Man again, gross sure. $2 billion and it did not get a Chinese release because China is very cranky with, with Disney right now for a whole bunch of reasons, which is another irony of all this, but like, it, whatever it, it's, it's neither here nor there. The real problem is that we have, we have built an industry that has I mean, we, I say we, but the studios have built an industry that that prizes one kind of thing above everything else. And eventually audiences are going to get tired of that. And if you have gutted the ability to make movies that are a good and be profitable at any other price point or type of genre, the industry is going to be in a great deal of trouble just in just as a as a financial economic matter. I, I made an assumption in the question earlier, and I asked if you agree with it, which is to what extent is this, the, the growth of that model, a function of near zero, zero real interest rates? You know, we, we or should, <laughs> Sonny's making a face going, I don't know. I don't know, man. That's a, that's an economic question. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a, that's an economic question that I'm not able to answer. I mean, again, the whole Netflix business model was basically predicated upon getting free money to, generate enormous amounts of content 
which they then converted to subscribers. And part of that, I think, is driven by mm-hmm. by low interest rate, you know, ease, ease of access to money, ease of access to accumulate debt is obviously going to, to, to have an issue there. But you you have phrased it in a way that I do not understand. <laughs> I'm sitting here counting <laughs> numbers on my fingers. I don't. I really, no, I mean, I, well, I, I, I suspect that that's true in terms of the the dynamic that we've been sort of talking around is like you're you're building these these two big to fail movies, right? It's like right. you your 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 model is not let's make a bunch of medium sized movies and sort of sometimes make profit on average. It's we got to do something really really big, and all of our bets are really really big, so they have to be guaranteed, so they have to be safer, and and everything else just sort of gets shipped into the wayside unless you can make very little money on it. That sounds to me like a finance problem, although I will I will accept the I don't I don't want to talk about finance as an answer. <laughs> it's just not my it's not my area of expertise. I mean, the, look, one thing we haven't really discussed at all is the audience problem. Mm-hmm. There is an audience problem and it's not just covid related. It's it is that people have decided that they would rather stay in and 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 watch streaming shows. They would rather stay in and watch, you know, something from their DVD or Blu-ray library. If you're a, a dinosaur like me, right, they would rather. They would rather play Elden Rings or, <laughs> you know, Bioshock Infinite or whatever. Right. Bioshock Infinite's the last game I can remember actually buying and playing and enjoying. But like we we have an audience problem and and that audience problem manifests itself in the only movies that really make money are the big blockbusters, because those are the only movies that right. people think are important enough to go out to see. And what? training audiences, I mean, I don't know you can, I don't know that you can train audiences mm-hmm. away from that. I, I don't know I don't know if we're headed toward a totally bifurcated system where you have uh, where you have like basically big comic book movies, some family pictures. like I think my understanding is that Disney is pretty is kind of kicking themselves that they did not release turning red in theaters. Because that is that's that's a movie that would have, you know, grossed probably a hundred million dollars and still would have done huge business on Disney Plus. And and then like the kind of micro indie prestige pictures that gross, you know, five to twenty million dollars. Or if they break out like everything everywhere all at once, you know, that movie's grossed twenty six or twenty seven million dollars so far. It, it might get up to fifty if they're if they're lucky. And that would be that would be a huge win for A twenty four for that studio. But like I, I, I we could be we could be headed toward that sort of future. And I don't know that theatrical can survive with that sort of product mix just in terms of like right. the theaters themselves, because like we're we're talking about the studios here. We haven't talked about the theaters at all. You know, AMC with its meme stocks and, you know, and Regal and all the rest. Like there is a there there's a real question as to whether or not theaters can can survive with a audience level that is 70% of pre-pandemic. I don't I don't know what the answer is. Right. I, I, well, so on the audience thing, I mean, I, I want to go back to something I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, it seems to me that there's been a very big shift or a, a growing divide between movie critics who I suppose I think of as kind of the credentialers of movies you know, they're the ones who say if the movie is good or not, or whether this kind of movie should be made more. And audiences, and, you know, you just look at, like, what people are going to see and liking, and then you look at the reviews. And sure, I mean, superhero movies, Marvel Marvel has figured out how to get good reviews in general. But, you know, more broadly, like, 
it, it does seem to me that movie critics, their tastes are just increasingly out of sync with the audiences. And like, for example, maybe this is and maybe this isn't a valid statistical model, but you know, when The Last Jedi came out, all these critics were like, it's so good. It's so wonderful. Oh my God, he took so many risks. And then you see, like on Rotten Tomatoes, the audience is like, fuck this. This doesn't make any sense. And indeed, I, I think on balance, yep. that that is like, like when I was watching it, I was kind of like, yeah, this is not as good as they said it was, you know? And, and and I'm sure there's always been some divide between sort of highbrow critics and and the masses, but do you think that divide has gotten bigger? And and if so, why do you think that is? And what might the effects of that, if any, be? Sure. Well, so Last Jedi is an interesting, an interesting example here. So I'm one of I'm one of the few critics who actually gave it a thumbs down. I didn't think it was right. Exactly. I, I thought it was obviously. So I was I was don't call me a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve, right? I was I was way ahead of everybody else on that one. So I I gave it a bad review, and. You're right that the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, right, was much lower than the, the critic score. It got review bombed on IMDb, et cetera, et cetera. But the cinema score, which is a so cinema score is a company that pulls opening weekend audiences. It's basically a it, it basically is telling the people who read the numbers, you know, did did the marketing appeal to the correct demographic did, did they get through and the cinema score which again is it's like an actual scientific poll it's not you know an internet poll like the uh, rotten tomatoes audience score is was exactly the same as the force awakens if i remember correctly it was either an a or uh, an a saying so so there what what i you know it's it's always it's always hard to tell what is like a a campaign i mean you guys know this you know the the usefulness of internet polls is very low you can't put a ton of stock into them. And one of the things that Rotten Tomatoes has done in recent years is institute a, there's a verified audience poll. Basically, if you have bought a ticket through Fandango or whatever, and you watch it, you can, you rate it and you, there's a verified audience number, which is, which is, I think a little more useful than just a, a general audience number. That said, to your broader point, I do think there's a divide between critics and audiences. I think that is, that that's always been the case. There's always been some of that. If you look at the top, the you know the 10 highest grossing movies of the year and the you know movies that are best reviewed that are you know winners of the national board of review or whatever however however we want to figure out what the like the best best critically acclaimed movies are there's less overlap there than there used to be i think i think critics are have i i think they've gotten a little too focused on like the small art artsy type movies and like i'm i'm as guilty as that of, as anyone else my number one movie last year was pig which grossed five million dollars or whatever at the box office and and wasn't wasn't seen by a ton of people, but was really, really good. I don't I, I don't know exactly why this has happened, except that I do think that the audience focus on the big kind of generic blockbusters, which often have like a baseline level of quality that gets you a thumbs up, but not like a yes, two thumbs up. Right. Like, I think that that's at least part of the issue here. I don't know. I mean, I like I will 100% can see that there's a giant gap between critics and audiences right now. I I am it's not 100% clear to me what has sparked this and how much worse it is now than in the past. Does that sure. make sense? I, Sorry. I mean, I, I kinda... Yeah, I guess I guess one sort of just a follow-up question is is do you think that market incentives still 
still dominate. And so the kinds of movies that get made ultimately are the ones that make money or, or like, like how much influence do, do critics have on what gets made? Is it, is it nothing or can they exert some kind of pressure that kind that in some cases, perhaps a countervailing pressure against where the market is trending? The, the amount of influence that critics have on what gets made at the highest level of like the franchise, you know, world, very little. I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter that much. I think Kevin sure. Feige probably cared. He, Kevin Feige probably wants MCU movies to get, you know, 90 percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he does. But like, I don't think it I don't think it makes an enormous difference. One way we'll be able to see if that's true is if they greenlight an Eternals 2 with Chloe Zhao, because Chloe, Chloe Zhao made the first rotten, I believe the first ever rotten MCU movie. And so if they make another Eternals with her, we'll be, I think that 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 will that will help answer the how much power critics mm-hmm. have question. Yeah. Yeah. But the but critics do have some power. They have some power. I mean, if you look at if you look at the best picture nominees this year, one of the nominees was a movie called Drive My Car, which was a three hour Japanese movie about people talking in cars, more or less people talking in cars and people, people performing plays in different languages, lots of subtitles. Uh, the number of people who have actually, the number of real people who have actually seen this movie, they pulled it it's like 4% of like regular mm-hmm. media, regular entertainment consumers. I think 4% had seen this movie. So in the general public, it's 0.2%. That movie got a Best Picture nomination because it was hugely critically acclaimed. It won a bunch of critics group awards. It got mm-hmm. it got inserted into the award season mix and it got a Best Picture nomination. Will Hollywood make movies like that? Probably not. Probably. I mean, I, I can't see, you know, anybody outside of, again, A24 or Neon making movies like that. And really, they'd be more likely to just pick them up from Japan. Where I mean, that movie was made with the assistance of the Japanese government. You almost all of these foreign films, basically every every movie that is not made in America is funded at least in part by the government of the or the Arts Council of the the country where it is produced. So that's where most of these types of films are coming from. And we don't really have the same sort of thing in America. That doesn't that doesn't really exist i mean it does again at the yeah. very small margins but in america if you're not getting made by a studio you're you're, if you're not getting made by a studio or via your own credit cards you're not getting made so so actually that that's an interesting i did not know that i mean how do you think that asymmetry kind of kind of translates into the difference between you know what what american movies get made and what movies are like in other parts of the world so David Mamet wrote a book uh, back in 2006 or maybe 2008, where he talks about how in the theater, in the world, what's that? The playwright for our audience. The playwright, David, David Mamet, the playwright, the, he directs films as well as screenwriter. But he, he wrote a book about how the American theater was in bad shape in large part because there were too many, there were too many subsidies for stage plays. That like you were, they were creating things that weren't of interest to the audience. And that was bad. That was bad, like not just for the productions themselves, because they can't make money, but also because it like turns off an entire generation of, you know, people who would go to go to place more or less. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing his argument badly. And I think that 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 sort of you see that sort of thing play out in some of these foreign films where like stuff that would just never get made in America, like the, the A24 movie Lamb. I don't know if you guys saw this, but it's a movie about a it's a it's a movie about 
essentially so the ad. Uh, a, a a childless couple in Iceland takes a half human half half sheep hybrid and is stalked by a, a a big giant lamb demon for it and it's all about you know isolation and loneliness that's the sort of movie that would never get made in America certainly at the the budget level that it got made in Iceland and you know, we can talk about whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. It's neither. I I am agnostic on, on on that. But it, it it definitely you definitely have a situation where you have lots and lots of you have lots and lots of movies that are getting made via some of these arts councils that simply would not get made because there's they're not super commercial. And like maybe that's good actually, but right. uh, it it tends to it tends to not generate a ton of like. You know, you don't have you don't have people getting into like heated debates about lamb around the office water cooler. We we've talked a lot about contem- present dynamics, and so in very in 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 the little time remaining, I guess I want to ask the normative question of: there are lots of things that seem suboptimal about the status quo that you've described. I should you are maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. What is what is a way that things could improve? What is a what is a way in which? Not, you know, it would be good if audiences went back to theaters, but what are the, what, what steps, if any, can be taken to get there? It would be good if, if there's a broader diversity of movies that are made, are there any steps that you can take to get there? We sort of, you know, we're, we're in a local equilibrium, we're screwed by it. Is there a, is, is there a reason for hope for our audience? The best thing that could happen, the best thing that could possibly happen to the American film industry is for China to shut America out entirely. There would be some short-term pain there because there's a lot of movies mm-hmm. that are budgeted right now counting on 50 to 100 million dollars out of China but in the, the long term making movies that appeal to domestic audiences first and foreign markets second would be better for the movie studios just in terms of the diversity of pictures they they made and in terms of cultivating audiences here at home and retraining them to go back to to movie theaters i mean i this has been a hobby horse of mine for a long time, and it, you know, it, 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 it has an increased moral urgency in the face of, you know, literal ethnic cleansing and, you know, the mistreatment of Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera. But like just on a pure, just on a, a very rational economic basis, the studios getting away from reliance on Chinese money would be a huge, huge win for them. Aaron, do you do you have closing thoughts on that, on the conversation in general that you want to offer to our audience? I mean, I'm I, I was struck by this this thing we got to at the end where reliance on government money makes both enables a certain kind of perhaps artistic risk taking that America's sort of you know, stereotypically entrepreneurial risk-taking culture actually does not enable precisely because it's become so beholden to the the demands of the global market. And on the other hand, you know, when I hear Sonny describe what this movie is about, I have to say, as perhaps as a, as a Philistine capitalist, I'm like, yeah, you know, I would not pay money to see that. That doesn't sound very interesting to me. I like my Spider-Man far from home. So, I, I mean, at one one thing I'm left thinking is is maybe uh, part of the problem here is that American capitalism has warped our warped our taste such that you know we're we're kind of too far gone and and this is this is the only game in town I don't know but you know that's not the end of the world I li- I do like Marvel it is fun I like most Marvel movies I just, you know okay. nothing wrong with Marvel 
my 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 stance on Marvel is that they're perfectly made to watch on airplanes. Like like when your when your brain is like depressed by being at altitude, that's the perfect time for a Marvel movie. When you're not, when you you just need you need three that, hours. I don't think that's how brain brains work. How it works. I don't think you're you're, you're you're in a pressurized cabin. Science. It's not like you have a lack of oxygen. Um, also, those movies work best on the big screen where you can watch them yeah, at like sure. IMAX or whatever. You're you're crazy. <laughs> So you should watch Lamb on an airplane. That's when you should watch Lamb. No, I don't want to pay attention. I don't want to watch Lamb at all. But, um, yeah. I mean, so, so, so throughout this conversation, I had a conversation with somebody recently who was sort of saying vague conservative things about the decline of religion. And I said, look, here's how the sociology, the sociology of the decline of religion works. There hasn't really been a decline of religion in the United States. There's been as a bifurcation where we used to have sort of all, all, all the decline in religious identification basically all the decline of religious identification comes from mainline Protestantism, the sort of like dominant churches in the 1950s and 1960s that people affiliated with because that was sort of a, a cultural touchstone. And now there's this big bifurcation. There's either either people been themselves in sort of the more orthodox, sectarian, either either more hardcore Catholic, evangelical Protestant, the black, traditional black churches, or they call themselves none of the above, where none of the above are often still spiritual which is part of a broader cultural breakdown of sort of centralizing institutions that it used to be the case that everyone sort of was loosely affiliated. And I think and then now now people have sort of much more parochial interests. And over the course of this conversation, I've been thinking about this model because it seems like a similar thing has happened in film that 30, 40 years ago, movies were sort of cultural, cultural reference points. There, there were fewer of them and there were more that needed to be that they, they were a feature of our collective culture. And and there has been sort of a similar decentralizing pressure. There's more content. There's more tailoring to specific interest. You consume it at home rather than in the studio. And so part of the dynamic we've been talking about this sort of bifurcation is like you need to spend a lot more money to break through to be a cultural touchstone. People, you, you, you need to put a lot more effort into and need to be into, into mainstream appeal to get people to get off their couches and go see movies. I'm not sure what to do with that analogy except to say that I think that to the extent that we've talked about a trend in film, I think it's part of that broader cultural uh, breakdown as a negative valence. I would say, I would say decentralization that, that appears in religion appears in other spaces as well. I don't know. I don't know, Sonny, if, if that sounds like nonsense to you, but I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts and then we can move to recommendations. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I, I can kind of see that. I mean, the other thing to think about, you know, sometimes we talk about total number of tickets sold or prices adjusted for inflation. And I've never been a huge fan of that metric. And I'm especially not a huge fan of it right now. But like the reason I'm not a huge fan of it is because once upon a time, people went to movie theaters to enjoy air conditioning, right? Like, like once upon a time, there used to be one thing and it was the movie theater and people would go there and they'd go no matter what the movie was and they'd go because it was hot out and they wanted to get out of the hot. They wanted to enjoy cold air, right? Mm -hmm. That's like an actual thing. So like I comparing the number of tickets sold when Gone with the Wind was touring the country to, you know, when Avatar came out or when Spider-Man No Way Home came out. I like I don't I don't buy it because Avatar and you know, or I guess less Avatar, but No Way Home, right, is competing against Fortnite. It's competing against Netflix. It's competing against your Kindle. You know, it's competing against everything. It's competing against like the entire knowledge of the history of the world that you have at the tips of your fingers on your computer at home. And that's just not a it's just we live in an, in an entirely different world. 
It's a different fight. Yeah. Right. On that front, Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Thank you, Charles. In keeping in keeping with my my Philistinism, I'm going to recommend a rather lowbrow, but I think good movie uh, that many people have probably seen, but some haven't. And it's a movie our guest has written about, John Wick. John Wick is awesome. I did not watch it for a long time because I knew that at the beginning a dog died and I did not want to watch a movie where a dog died. Charles is shaking his head at me because Charles hates the core, dogs. The, 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 the core tension of this podcast is that Aaron thinks animals are good and I think animals are bad. Yes, it's a the problem. Dramatic. But no, animals, dogs are good. Dog murderers are bad. And violently killing dog murderers with sophisticated firearms is good. And John Wick, after you get over the dog dying, the whole rest of the movie is just him savagely killing uh, dog murderers with guns and knives. And honestly, it's really freaking cool. Everyone should see it, even those, and perhaps especially those who don't like animal death in movies. I, I, I've never just seen John Wick. Maybe I should see John oh, Wick. Yeah, um, you should watch John Wick. My, my recommendation this week is past institutionalized guest Russ Douthit's second most recent book, The Decadent Society, which touches on uh, film culture, why we keep making the same movies over and over again in sort of a broader thesis, um, which dovetails with with my concluding thoughts. It's a good book. It's a, you know, it's a fast read. I recommend it. Everyone like quoted the same passage. It was stuck. Sunny, do you have a recommendation from your work, from others' work, things that you think our listeners should be aware of? I mean, I, I could make lots of recommend. I, 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 there's a movie out right now. I mentioned it briefly before, but everything everywhere all at once people should go check out. It's, it is fantastically creative and uh, visually unique while also I think appeal, it has appeal for the, the, you know, Marvel crowd. It's actually produced by the Russo brothers. They are producers on this who directed the last two Avengers films and Captain America, Civil War, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's got a wide appeal, but it also has a nice some would say treacly emotional core, but I, I, I'll go with nice. Okay. Well, that I believe is all the time that we have. Thank you, Sonny, for joining us. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, movie recommendations, you can find us. We're on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sperium. With that, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sperium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope that you will join us again next time. Mm-hmm.